So to start with a question, one that probably doesn't get asked in church a lot. With whom should you have sex? I think for most of what we think of as Western civilization, the answer to that question was pretty clear, fairly undisputed. The answer is the person to whom you're married. Even if people didn't always actually live in ways that were consistent with their beliefs and their principles, even if certain kinds of people might imagine that society's broader standards didn't apply to them, there's never been much doubt about what those standards were. That began at the risk of simplification. That began to change on a broader popular level during the so-called sexual revolution of the mid-20th century. Under the influence of Sigmund Freud's theories, as they sort of percolated through society, as traditional religious commitment declined, as a kind of radical individualism began to permeate the wider culture, people began to wonder exactly why these sexual standards existed and whether or not they were really conducive to and compatible with human happiness. So Hugh Hefner, the publisher of Playboy, the famous flouter of moral standards, once said in an interview with, of all things, Ability Magazine, a magazine uh, advocating for the rights of uh, disabled people. So I'm not sure why they were interviewing Hugh Hefner exactly. I didn't look too closely, but he said in Ability Magazine this. He said, I grew up in a very typically American repressive home, very Protestant, very Methodist, very Puritan. I'm not sure he knows what all those words mean. <laughs> Sex was perceived as the one part of the human experience that was not natural and positive and good. Sex was continually associated with the confines of marriage. And I didn't, even as a very small boy, believe it. It was the one part in my home that I felt was hurtful, even crippling. I mean... It's just bodies. Big deal. Well, if Hugh Hefner represents the sort of lowbrow, least common denominator, hedonist point of view, I think the more intellectually fashionable idea was the view of the evolutionary sociologists who said that sex is only important because it's been sort of hardwired into our biological instincts. So one such scholar argues actually for the importance of monogamy and faithfulness in marriage this way. He says, humans, like most species of birds and animals, are not inherently monogamous, but we can be trained out of it. If we slip up and take a new mate while the old mate is still alive, it is likely to destroy the pair bonding with our previous mate and create great instinctual disorientation which is part of the tragedy of infidelity. So in that view, being faithful to your spouse is important because otherwise you destroy pair bonding and create instinctual disorientation. Right, this guy is probably a lot of fun to be married to, you know, a real romantic. But the problem with that view, of course, is that it's still basically subjective and individualistic. Right, what if your spouse actually doesn't care? What if your spouse isn't disoriented by your infidelity? And what if you're able to hide 
your infidelity, so that they don't experience that, that erosion of pair bonding. Is there any reason in that case to say that infidelity is wrong? Now, of course, if you've been paying attention, you'll know things like evolutionary biology are, are, are considered passe these days, somewhat outdated. Uh, sex now is an act, the meaning of which is completely determined by the individual. The individual is the one who gets to decide what, if any, gender or species they may be, whose tastes and appetites uh, ought to be catered to. Right? The only limits are our ability to gain the consent of a co-carnalist. Right? As a society, for us, sex is whatever I want it to be. And so yet again, we see how the, the Ten Commandments in God's word call on God's people to live as a kind of counter to the wider culture. So if you've been here recently, you know we've been walking through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the story of the people of Israel and their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Lord has rescued his people, has brought them out, and, and they're on the way to a land that the Lord is going to give to them. And in Exodus 20, he meets with them at Mount Sinai, and he gives them instructions on how they are to live as his people in this land. Right? These laws that, that God is giving to his people are meant to shape their life. And so today, as I said, we, we come to the, the seventh commandment. There in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Let me, let me read it to you. It says there, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. So just like last week in the sixth commandment, uh, this verse is only two words in the original Hebrew. The, the word don't and the word adulterate or commit adultery, as we would say. God tells the people of Israel, do not be unfaithful to your spouse. Do not cheat on your husband or wife. Do not commit adultery. So as we, as we think about those words this morning, uh, what I'd like to do is, is look at three things. I think we'll be helped to see three things, and so this will be our outline for this morning. Uh, first, let's investigate the reason for the commandment. Uh, second, let's look at the keeping of the commandment, and then finally the consequences of the commandment. The reason, the keeping, and the consequences. Let's start with the reason for the commandment. The Lord doesn't actually provide an explanation for his instructions here in Exodus 20. As I said, it's only two words. It's basically, don't do it. The command doesn't come to us here with any rationale. It seems like much like the command not to murder, uh, the idea is that this wasn't expected to be a huge shocker. Uh, the people of Israel had a pretty good idea that this was already in place. This was fairly obvious. But for us, living in 2022 in Northern Virginia, we probably need to bring to the surface what's just below, uh, what's sort of the foundation that this command sits on. We need to bring it to the light and make it explicit. And so let me just try to take a stab at offering the sort of, for us, radical, countercultural foundation on which the Seventh Commandment stands. Ready? So here's my attempt. Marriage and sex have a meaning and a purpose which are assigned to them by God and which do not depend on our feelings, desires, orientation, or circumstances. 
Okay, let me say that again, because I think if we get this right, we're not going to have a lot of problems understanding the commandment in Exodus 20:14. And, and let me just say for young people, let me urge you to pay particular attention. I think most of us in our 30s and older grew up in a world where, where this was assumed, if not always practiced. But, but young people today are growing up in a world where the exact opposite is being preached from every movie and song and show and tweet, it's even from some Christian pulpits. But, but here it is. The foundation on which the seventh commandment rests is this. Marriage and sex have a meaning and a purpose which are assigned to them by God and which do not depend on our feelings, desires, orientation, or circumstances. Now, that might sound like bad news. We live in a world where there's a delusion abroad that, that freedom and um, the ability for a person to determine and assign the meaning and purpose of everything in their life is the ultimate value. Right? That way, I, on, I and only I can be the judge of whether I'm right or wrong. We live in a world where, where that is good. That is freedom. Right? I get to choose. I get to determine the meaning of my life. But of course, we know that's not good news, right? Imagine that, little thought experiment here. Imagine that you were the leader of a group of pioneers and you needed to find your way through a, a treacherous mountain range to safety on the other side. Or, or imagine that you were responsible for the, the safe operation of a nuclear power plant. Or imagine that it's wartime and you're responsible for translating some message that's been intercepted from your enemies. In which of those circumstances do you imagine that you'd find a radical relativism comforting? Would you feel like a map showing you your way from where you are to safety? Would you feel like that map was oppressive? Would you find some instruction in nuclear engineering to be an affront to your personal dignity? Would you be angered by the suggestion that you use a, a lexicon to show you the meaning of the words uh, in this foreign language? Well, of course not. You understand in those situations that there is a reality that exists quite apart from your feelings and preferences. It doesn't really matter which way you want to go. There's only one way through the mountain to safety. Your feelings about ideal core reactor temperatures don't have any bearing on when the the plant melts down. The language your enemies are using has an agreed-upon set of meaning that doesn't have anything to do with you. And so in all those cases, what you need is instruction and guidance. And so it's actually good news, friends, that our Creator hasn't left us to guess what our bodies are for. He hasn't left us to guess what the meaning of gender is, or how to define marriage, or, or what the proper use of sexuality is. The good news of the seventh commandment is that you're not set adrift on a sea of chaos with eight billion equally valid interpretations of the question at hand. God's told us. He's told us that he's made us male and female, both in his image. That is to say, though men and women are different, both are alike in terms of being image bearers of God. In the book of Genesis, we read that the first man and the first woman were given to one another in marriage and were joined together sexually, becoming so intimate that they could be described as being one flesh. In Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle Paul tells us that there is a deep 
mystery that's been hidden in the institution of marriage. That is to say, there is a truth, there is a meaning buried deep down in the creation of marriage, something that couldn't really be brought to the light and realized until much later. And so Paul writes about the intimacy between a wife and a husband in marriage and tells us that it's really an illustration of Jesus' love for his people. So we read in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Listen, Paul says this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is not fundamentally a social construct that humans developed over time. Paul's saying it's actually right at the heart of the gospel message. God has woven into the fabric of marriage the idea that the love of a husband for his wife would be a picture of God's love for his people, a picture of the love that the Lord Jesus has for his church. Brothers and sisters, that's the great main point of marriage that we would experience in our own marriages or that we would see in the marriages of others the kind of deep, intimate, sacrificial, selfless love that the Lord Jesus has for his people. And when God's love for us in Christ becomes hard to understand or hard to feel or hard to believe, the idea is that we might be able to look to marriage and say, okay, I see some small glimmer of the way God loves me in his son. Right? Just as marriage has created this lifelong connection between two people in love, so the Lord Jesus loves me. He loves his church, and we've been united to him in a permanent relationship. So in light of that meaning, sex has been given to human beings, again, for a specific purpose. It's not been given to us solely for our pleasure, though pleasure is part of it. But if it were only about pleasure, the only limits that we would have on our sexuality would be do what feels good. But there's more to it. It has more meaning than that. It's meant to be a, a connecting and a unifying act. God tells us that in his eyes, sex is a big deal because he created it to be a deeply spiritual experience. Sexual intercourse is a physical act that spiritually unifies a man and a woman. Right? This is the Apostle Paul's point when we were studying 1 Corinthians 6 some months ago. Right? He told the church there that, that sexual intimacy is like a kind of spiritual superglue. Right? It sticks things together. Right? If, you've, if you've ever used superglue, you know that it's great when it's used properly. Right? If you've ever used it with a five-year-old... You know it's a disaster when it's used improperly. Right? You're putting a handle back on a, on a coffee mug that you're sad was broken. You're glad for superglue. Right? You get superglue on newspaper and then on your hand, and it's a nightmare. In a way, that's what sex is like. When used in the context of marriage, it serves as a kind of covenant cement. It binds together something that was meant to stick for a lifetime. But when used outside the marriage, you start gluing together things that weren't meant to be together. 
You can try and try, but you're not going to unglue those things without doing some damage. And so that's why the Lord gives us his instruction here. Not despite Hugh Hefner's objections because God and the Bible are somehow prudish or opposed to sex, but rather because God is radically pro-sex. It was God's idea. It was his creation. God wants human beings to use this gift the way it was meant to be used. It's simply too good. It's too important to be used cheaply or promiscuously. You see, brothers and sisters, we need to We need to remember and we even need to begin to recover and proclaim the truth that the Christian sexual ethic is is far more pro-sex than the world because it reserves it and, and preserves it for the confines of marriage. It says that sex is too good, too honorable, too important to be used casually with strangers or acquaintances and friends. It is only for the lifetime commitment of marriage. Within the context of marriage, the Bible tells us that sexual intimacy serves several purposes. So procreation, relational unity, pleasure, joy. Right? A few years ago when we studied the Song of Solomon together, we saw that. Right? There's a whole book of poetry in the Bible devoted to the, the love and, and sexual intimacy between a man and his wife. So we can say here that God forbids adultery in the seventh commandment because marriage is meant to be a picture of his relationship to his people. And friends, that actually teaches us something then very important about God. If God says marriage is a picture of of my relationship to you, and then the seventh commandment comes along and says, don't be unfaithful to one another, well, that tells us something very important. And that is God is faithful to his people. If our relationship to God is like a marriage, then unfaithfulness to him is like adultery, right? Anytime we give our love, our worship, our trust to something or or someone other than him, it's infidelity. But God is always faithful. Despite us, he loves us. He provides for us. He watches over his people. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. It's the great message that God gives to the prophet Hosea. He, if you're familiar with that book in the Old Testament, God told Hosea to take a prostitute named Gomer as his wife. She was unfaithful to him, repeatedly taking other lovers. But the Lord told Hosea to stay with her, to be faithful to her, to provide for her and to love her. Their relationship was meant to be a picture of the Lord's relationship to the people of Israel. He loved them, but they went after other gods. They indulged their lusts. They did whatever they wanted. And so in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, the prophet is told this, or the prophet writes this. He says, And the Lord God said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which were used in Canaanite worship, right? Gomer's infidelity was an apt illustration of how the people of Israel were treating the Lord. They loved other gods more than they loved Yahweh who had saved them and who had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And so how would the Lord respond? Well, he tells Hosea, go and love her. 
We read in chapter 11, after many chapters listing out the sins and the failures of God's people, in Hosea 11, verse 8, the Lord says this. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. You see, despite everything they had done, the Lord was faithful to his people. He was a, a loving husband. His love is pure and faithful. And, and that's why our marriages, if they're meant to be a picture of God's love, must be characterized by fidelity and loyalty to one another because that's how God loves his people. God's love for Israel was particular and exclusive. He loved this nation out of all other nations. He took Israel to be his bride. And they were to love him alone out of all of the gods of the nations. So that's the reason for the seventh commandment. That's why adultery is forbidden. Not simply because God needed something to round out and make an even ten. Right? But because adultery destroys marriage as a picture of God's love and faithfulness. That brings us then to the second point this morning, and that is the keeping of the commandment. Let's talk about then what this command forbids and what it requires of us. I think first and most obviously, this means married couples must not engage in sexual activity with anyone who's not their spouse. That's the most basic level at which we must keep this command. Uh, married couples should keep the marriage bed exclusive and not have sex with anyone beside their spouse. But I do think we have to keep the larger point in mind. Right, the goal here is not just avoiding the act of adultery, though it's not less than that. But actually, we're called to more. We're called to positively reflect the image of a God whose love is exclusive and faithful. Right? It's not just avoiding adultery. It's actually being faithful. And that means that we need to avoid anything that might compromise the, the purity and exclusivity of our marriages. Right? It's not simply adulterous intimacy that's off limits, but everything that might lead up to that. And so we should understand the seventh commandment as a call to faithfulness, to forbid things that contribute to adultery, things like flirting or excessive emotional intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. It may be that as you get married and as you walk through your married life, you need to change your relationship with other people to, to make it clear that in a very real way you belong only to your wife or husband. The seventh commandment also means that single people shouldn't engage in premarital sex. Studies indicate that more than 90% of Americans will engage in sexual activity before they're married. But as Christians, uh, we are called to wait until marriage. Again, just like superglue is wonderful when you want something put together permanently, so sex is reserved for the long-term commitment of marriage. So, single people, uh, do not attempt to separate the pleasure of sex from the commitment of sex. Put off the pleasure until the commitment has been made. Uh, you should treat other men and women like you would want your future spouse to be treated. 
In that way, you're being faithful to that person, whoever it is. It also means that if you're currently dating or engaged to someone, the two of you should refrain from sex until the wedding. I think too often couples think, well, we're going to get married anyway, so what's the, what's the point in getting a head, or what's the harm in getting a head start? But there's actually a lot of harm. Uh, first, you violate God's will, right? You sin by, by acting like you know better than God. You worship yourself by exalting your pleasure over God's law. But you also do potentially great harm to your future marriage. The last thing you want for your marriage is for your spouse to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will give in to temptation if it's strong enough. Right? When you engage in premarital sexual activity, you are telling your, your future spouse, you can't trust me. You can't trust me to be obedient to God or to be faithful to you if I'm tempted. Brothers and sisters, trust me, that dynamic will not serve you well as you go into marriage. And so engaged couples, dating couples, uh, ought to honor the seventh commandment by, by refraining from sexual intimacy until marriage. The seventh commandment also means that we should refrain from anything that tends towards sexual lust. So the Lord Jesus, many centuries after the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he unfolds the meaning of the seventh commandment for us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Uh, we read there that the Lord said, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So that's the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to Jesus, we cannot restrict the meaning of the seventh commandment to merely the physical act of having sex with someone other than your spouse. Uh, we see here that the point of the commandment is, is not simply to give us a list of behaviors to avoid, but rather it's a call. It's a call to a, a posture of, of purity and faithfulness that reflects the character and image of God. Right? If the seventh commandment were only speaking about external physical acts, well then we would really be able to say it only applies to a smaller subset of our church. Right? The rest of us could perhaps feel good about ourselves. But if you think you have this commandment covered because you've never physically cheated on your spouse, then we need to take seriously the fact that the Lord Jesus throws open the doors here and makes room for all of us, right? None of us, if you have any self-awareness and self-knowledge, pass the lust in the heart test. On some level, we have all indulged and embraced the same sort of fantasies and lusts and desires that lead to adultery. And so if you're feeling condemned as you sit here because you have committed adultery, well, then at least, at the very least, I've got good news for you coming forward, but at the very least for now, you can know that you're in good company. Or maybe I should say bad company. But you have a lot of company, right? Everyone here has done what you did. Or I'm sorry, everyone here may not have done exactly what you've done, but we all have the same sin in our hearts and so the doors, as it were, are blown off this commandment, right? If you think that it's not talking to you, now hopefully you see that it is, right? Lust is, is looking at someone and imagining and sort of delighting in the possibilities. It's looking at someone and, and, and delighting in the idea of having sex with them, or it's looking at someone and imagining the idea of being with them and experiencing their love and protection and care and intimacy, right? This kind of 
lust violates the seventh commandment because it, it, it violates the, the principles that undergird the law, right? That we ought to love the Lord our God and that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? When we devolve into sexual fantasy and lust, we worship ourselves, right? We make a world where we are essentially God, where everything exists for our pleasure and for our purposes and our desires, And this kind of lust also leads us not to love our neighbor, but to consume them, to to devour them for our pleasure. Instead of being concerned with their welfare, we're focused on their desire, or on our desire. And so, brothers and sisters, this means we need to walk very carefully in the world around us. We we can't be naive and passive. We, We can't adopt the world's perspective. Right, let's be honest. As, as you go out into the world, we live in a place that mocks the idea of purity, right? that mocks what they call sort of evangelical purity culture, this outdated idea that sex has some meaning beyond the meaning I give to it. The world around us mocks chastity and fidelity. It celebrates pornography as a kind of freedom and, and sexual license. But brothers and sisters, if we would avoid lust, we have to be careful how we interact with this world. If if you think you can walk around in Loudoun County in 2022 without being bombarded with sexual imagery and and sexual temptation, you're you're fooling yourselves. Again, estimates, I don't know who gets paid to do this, but estimates out there are that that the average American adult sees 10,000 sexually suggestive images in a year. I have no idea if that's true, but it, it sounds terrifying. Right, if we're to be a, a holy and faithful counterculture, we're simply not going to be able to trust the world around us to do the policing for us. Right, we can't look out and say, well, look, everyone else is doing it, so it must be okay. Right, we can't act and think and engage and dress like the world because the world doesn't have the same agenda that God gives us here in the seventh commandment. And I think every indication is that things are getting worse, not better. Right, there is something in us, something in the nature of sin, that we want to be able to indulge our desires without guilt or shame. And so rather than deny ourselves lustful pleasure, the temptation is to normalize it. Right? Because if everyone agrees that it's okay, then I don't have to feel guilty. And in fact, we can make it seem kind of weird to be concerned about these things. If we're being honest, there's a lot of money to be made off of sex. It simply sells, right? And so there is going to be a lot of pressure in our culture in that direction. I was at the gym a few weeks ago. There was a bank of maybe five televisions up above uh, some of the the, the weights and equipment. And so I was thinking about this sermon. I had it on my mind. And when I looked up, I kind of noticed that, you know, if you really, like, pay attention, four of the five TVs had something sort of sexually suggestive on them. This is a public space. This is just a normal gym. Nothing too scandalous, but... You know, you notice that none of the people were wearing sort of wool sweaters, right? No one's wearing a baggy jumpsuit, right? And then I looked, and on the fifth TV, there was football. And I thought, football, the last hope for our world, right? <laughs> and just when I thought, football, what can't you do? They, they cut to the cheerleaders. And I was like, well, there you go. The truth is, sex sells. 
Uh, people will keep tuning in for a sort of low-level sexual titillation. Movies will keep stroking your lust in subtle and not-so-subtle ways so that you'll keep forking over your money. Right? Have you ever noticed how in movies every woman is the ideal woman if you're a man? Right? She's beautiful, she's smart, she's funny, adventurous, likes sports, not too emotional. Every man is the ideal man if you're a woman. Handsome, sensitive, caring, nurturing, wishes you'd talk about your feelings more, right? <laughs> Why is that, right? Because movie makers want you to be dissatisfied. They want you to, to have your desires, your lusts stoked, your, your dissatisfaction with your life and with your spouse so that they can sell you more movies and make more money off you. I'm not saying don't go to the movies necessarily. I am saying be aware of the fact that Netflix doesn't care about your soul. They care about your wallet. And so we're not going to be able to walk sort of naively in this world and let the culture set the standard for us. Hollywood does not care if you go to hell. If they can stoke your lusts to get your money, they'll do it. And that brings us to the third and final thing for us to see today, and that is the, the consequences of this commandment. Again, I'm aware that this view of sex that's laid out for us in the Bible is very out of step with our culture. If you pay attention, we do have this weird split in our world where on one hand we want to say like Hugh Hefner did, sex is really not a big deal. It's just bodies after all, just a biological function. But on the other hand, we want to make everything about sex all the time. But despite what the world around us says, God says sex is very important. It's a very real part of loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. And so we have to take these matters seriously. We ignore them uh, at our own harm. We play with them at great peril to our souls. So uh, what I want to do is just give you a sampling of a few places in the Bible uh, where we're told about the consequences of sexual sin. So in the law of Moses, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, we read that God said to the people of Israel this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So in the, in the nation of Israel, uh, adultery was meant to be understood to be so serious that it was a capital offense. Much later, the author of Hebrews tells the Christian church this in Hebrews 13 verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Again, brothers and sisters, there might be no verse in the Bible our world disbelieves more than that. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Colossae this in Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Again, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Right? There's a lot of things on that list, but you notice adulterers are on sort of Paul's mind as the, the kind of person who does not inherit the kingdom of God. And then finally in Matthew 5, right, we read earlier where Jesus sort of threw the doors open to the commandment. The very next verse, right, he, he says, in the very same context, he gives us this warning. So having said that we ought not to commit adultery, and by adultery he means even lusting after someone else in your heart, he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, put those verses together. You get a picture. And I just chose a small sampling for the sake of time. You could, you could plumb the... The, the riches of Scripture and find many more warnings just like it, right? Of all of those, the ones saying that people who commit adultery should be killed is probably the, the most merciful, right? All the other ones talk about eternal punishment uh, for those who commit adultery. So I wonder if that surprises you. Does it seem like God needs to catch up with the times? And after all, we don't feel like people should be shamed or made to feel bad for who they sleep with. Now, again, I don't think our world is actually very consistent with that policy. Right? We say it's wrong to judge people for their sexual behavior, but we harshly condemn those who don't sort of closely conform to our ethic of anything consensual goes. Right? Even the, the whole Me Too movement of the recent past was an example of that. Right? I, I think we actually agree with God that sexual sin should be punished severely. I think... We just think that we're the ones who ought to determine what is sin and what is not sin. But friends, it really doesn't matter what we think. God is the one who made the world. God is the one who will one day render judgment. And so what we need to know is what he says and what he thinks. And he says that adultery and lust are, are matters of eternal significance that he will judge those who violate his law, that they will be excluded from his eternal kingdom and presence. Jesus says that they will be cast into hell. The world out there might say that sexual immorality is no big deal, but the word of God could not be clearer. No matter how unfashionable that idea might be, uh, these things are matters of eternal consequence. Sex is not the highest point that a human being can reach. You can live without it. Jesus never had sex. He lived a perfect and fulfilling human life. The Apostle Paul was celibate, seemed to appreciate the lack of complication in that arena as he served the Lord. Right? Sex is not the thing. It's meant to point us to the thing. Sex isn't the same thing as intimacy with God. It's meant to point us towards intimacy with God. But it is a good gift and a powerful gift. And so God gives us clear instructions. He does not hand us a stick of dynamite and a match and say, good luck figuring out what to do. In his love, he puts that gift within the confines of marriage where it can serve its purpose, creating intimacy and being a source of joy. Brothers and sisters, that's so much better than look inside yourself and figure out what's right. But he also says that he will hold us accountable 
accountable for the ways we use this gift, accountable for the ways we've rebelled against him, ways we've assumed we know better, ways we've knowingly ignored his law and pursued our own lusts. Now, if you're paying attention, hopefully you realize that none of us can stand in the light of this judgment. We are all unfaithful in our hearts, in our actions, to our spouses, to the Lord, right? We are adulterers. We've consumed sexually explicit books, movies, videos. We've had sex outside the bounds of marriage, right? We've condemned the world for its perversions and embraced the same things in the shadows, right? We have been faithless, every bit as much as Israel was. We deserve God's just condemnation. But as we saw in Hosea, God's faithfulness is forever, even when we're not faithful to him. So in love, he has sought us and pursued us, even wooed us away from the other things that vie for the love of our heart. In his great love, God sent his son to take on a human flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And on the cross, Jesus gave up that life as a substitute and a sacrifice for his people. You and I have all been unfaithful to God. We are all violators of the seventh commandment, along with all the other commandments, and we deserve God's judgment. But in love, Jesus took that judgment on himself at the cross. Right in Matthew 5, he says, look, it's better to, it's better to go into heaven with one hand than go into hell fully formed. But brothers and sisters, he experienced hell for us. He was cut off for our sake. Although he had been perfectly faithful to God, he was treated like he was an adulterer. He endured that so lustful people like you and me, lawbreakers, commandment violators like you and me could be forgiven, cleansed, restored, transformed, made new. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And brothers and sisters, he lives today to offer salvation to anyone who would turn from their sin and come to him in humble faith. That is good news. The bad news is that you and I deserve God's judgment. The bad news is you can't do anything to make it better. But the good news is so much better than the bad news is bad. And that is if you'll come to Christ today, you will be cleansed, forgiven, and restored. We have a solution to our sin problem. We have the promise of the faithfulness of God, a God who is so faithful to us in Christ that it covers up all of our infidelity to him. So now as we come to the Lord's table, we have an invitation. We have an invitation. Adulterers, fornicators, lusters like you and me, people who deserve God's judgment, people from whom God ought to hide his face, the Lord Jesus in love says, come to my table. I, I want to be with you. I, I want you to come cleansed from your sins by my broken body and my shed blood. Come share a meal with me. Here at the table, we are reminded of that great mystery shown to us in marriage, that the Lord Jesus is a groom to his church, that he's promised one day to come back, and that he's faithful to all of his promises. 
On that day, there will be a great wedding feast. And anyone who's put their trust in Christ will be there, cleansed and made ready, ready to spend eternity with him. Until then, each week we continue to celebrate the Lord's table together and to delight in his love. So let's pray together and then let's celebrate. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled before your word this morning. We thank you for the goodness of your creation, the goodness of your gift of sex and marriage, the goodness of your law, and the way that it it points us away from destruction, the way it points us towards flourishing and happiness. But we're humbled when we look at our own lives and we see how Far short we have fallen of your standard. We're ashamed when we think how uh, backwards and how unfaithful we've been in our love. But we rejoice in the great love that you've shown to us in Christ, that even though we are an unfaithful spouse, you are a faithful husband to your people. We do pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might help us to fight against sin and lust and temptation. And we pray that you would help us to live in light of the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, that we would be marked as a people who, who pluck out eyes and cut off hands rather than go to hell fully formed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for sinners like us, that you have cleansed us and restored us, that you're not ashamed to call us your brothers and sisters, but welcome us to your table. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen.